word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the KJZZ Studios in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this edition of Word, we talk cli-fi with a small cadre of writers and editors. Science is leading us in a certain direction, but some of those nuances, I still would say, are unknown. And a lot of folks, I think, are grappling with those pieces. And we celebrate the release of a new anthology of climate fiction entitled Everything Change. So I crafted this story in response specifically to the Everything Change contest. But it was really my first trial into writing climate fiction. But first, a recent online discussion about indigenous futurisms and contributions to popular culture by indigenous creators caught our ear. It was hosted by the Museum of Northern Arizona and moderated by Anthropology Collections Manager Tony Thibodeau. The panel explored trends from the point of view of indigenous creators and addressed issues such as decolonization and indigenous representation in mainstream popular culture. Each was asked about what indigenous futurisms mean to them and their work. We begin with Dr. Darcy Little Badger, who is Lipan Apache, and an earth scientist, as well as author of the debut young adult novel, Alatsa Way. The acknowledgement of the continuity between our past and our present and our future uh, is very important, especially in what I write, where uh, even in these these YA fantasy books uh, that I wouldn't personally call indigenous futurisms, they do have that element of acknowledging just how important Uh, different periods of times are and how they influence each other, uh, and especially how we are going to continue to thrive in the future, which is something that uh, is is often uh, ignored by, especially in the past, uh, by genre writers, I guess, uh, when when I was reading science fiction and fantasy as a child, it was rare for me to find Apache characters who were living in the future, Uh, you know, they were usually uh, in historical type fiction in the 1800s. I do think that's really cool. Uh, And also as a scientist, uh, one thing that I I have to struggle with sometimes is to convince people that we should care about many generations in the future. I am an earth scientist uh, studying biological oceanography, but I also looked at things like sea level change and ocean acidification. Um, So I do have this great awareness of how the earth is going to change and how it's in our power uh, right now to make it uh, the the best possible future uh, for generations going forward. Uh, But as a student, uh, I was once in a a discussion with, with other students and one of them actually said, I know things will be bad, but I'll be dead. Why should I care? Uh, and the thing is, we should care because we we should be uh, recognizing our power to make life better for people who will exist beyond our lifetimes. And, and that's important. Uh, and as a fiction writer, I, I try to just emphasize that because really is my, my life's my life's work is emphasizing that we should care. Um, that's my take on indigenous futurisms. Also included in the discussion was Dr. Lee Francis IV who's Pueblo of Laguna and an award-winning poet and writer. He's the founder of Indigipop X, 
formerly Indigenous Comic-Con. I think it ties into Indigenous Futurisms as a concept, um, like the academic side as well, is to really be, I think it's a philosophical fundamental. Like I didn't really understand it. And I sat down and read the book uh, by Dr. Dylan, and I started really interacting with a lot of these folks coming off of the first Comic-Con and now um, in Digipop X was this understanding that it 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 is about ways of being and knowing which is you know time this uh post-colonialism you know anti-colonialism how are we not only empowering ourselves but reframing our own existence a world that you know is still bent on erasing us we just saw that recently on the news this is the things that we deal with and indigenous futurisms is i think the most positive counterpoint what I saw too much in the work coming into this was there was a fetishization of tragedy, um, dead and dying Indians, right? This idea of just like, oh, look at the great chiefs. Well, they were people from 100 years ago and they were no, they're no longer alive. But it became this focus on almost like, like we want to say like a death cult, right? And not even from us, but when they were constantly bombarded, bombarded with it, we begin to internalize that. As Native people, if you're constantly shown, like, if you live by a graveyard, you think, well, I guess we live by ghosts, you know, like, that, that's how we're always portrayed or, or had been previously in popular culture. It was a terrible way to grow up. And so, you know, the last 15, 20 years, as this movement, not only in art and music, uh, but it's a cultural movement, it's a spiritual movement, it's a philosophical movement has been all of these wonderful people that I'm sharing this screen with and how we've been able to communicate and articulate a new way. We're still around, we're still gonna be around and you're not gonna stop that flow through. Like we're not going anywhere. So I think that was really in, in essence, a lot of what we tried to put together with the Comic-Con. We tried to put together with, with IPX. We had, you know, in, in, in sort of the one line, it was the, uh, you know, kind of the, the sci-fi fantasy line because those are always grouped together, but bringing everybody in was really about having these conversations with artists and futurists and dreamers and bringing folks into this space. You can find out more about the panel and link to the entire conversation on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. It's time to plan your summer road trip. If you have a vehicle that won't be a part of your trip to San Diego or Yellowstone, donate it to KJZZ. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. And thanks. You have your favorites. Oh, man, my favorite mug. And maybe it's about time to treat yourself to a new favorite. Mugs and T-shirts for you and the family are at shop.kjzz.org. So what are you waiting for? Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Numerous articles published over the last several years have examined people's attitudes about not wanting to have children for fear of devastating climate change. That's where I began a recent conversation with a three-person panel who are part of a new anthology of climate fiction entitled Everything Change. The panel was made up of Joey Eshrick, one of the editors, Jules Hogan, whose work is featured in the anthology, and Kelly Leidick who served as a judge of the contest that shaped the collection. We started out with Joey. I haven't heard of the research, but it really resonates with what we've experienced in this contest. So we started running these in 2016, and every year we have a huge amount of stories that are about the kind of 
uh, ethics of bringing children into a rapidly changing world, people kind of really struggling and torturing themselves with those decisions, or people having unexpected pregnancies and then trying to figure out what to do and dealing with the fallout, or even some stories about climate-stressed futures in which things have not gone very well and how difficult it is to have children um, and, 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 and really little kids in, the, in those futures um, and, and be able to nurture them and take care of them. So I, I think that's an, it's a really prominent anxiety for people. Uh, I think it's a really tangible, concrete way to think about the challenges that people see on the horizon, you know, children kind of standing in for the capital F future. Right. And I think a lot of times when people read science fiction or when they read climate fiction, they feel like things are pretty hopeless. And I'm wondering if that entered into your thinking as an editor into compiling this. It's something we think about a lot. So uh, with these contests and sort of calls for submissions from writers around the globe, we really do try to ask for stories that think about solutions, think about human ingenuity, think about adaptation. Um, This contest was framed uh, around um, some research uh, that comes out of the Stockholm Resilience Center in Sweden uh, about a framework they call planetary boundaries, climate being one of them, and things like pollution and and sort of water availability and land use uh, that they say define a safe environmental operating space for humanity on Earth. And we asked for stories that imagined human communities and societies that lived within those planetary boundaries. We are often hoping for stories that are kind of about muddling through the trouble and the difficulties of the next several decades and and trying to come out with something that's sustainable going forward and and humane and just. But a lot of the stories, regardless of how we frame the contest, do come in being very grim and gloomy. And I think that's understandable. Like I think people have a huge range of emotions and reactions and they come pouring out in fiction. And even if people are trying to be hopeful and optimistic, you know, they're not going to be able to totally shy away from all of the challenges and suffering that might come as a result of the climate crisis. But I always say um, to people through this process that the more that I've sat with these stories, the more I I locate hope in them. And actually Jules's story uh, is one of the more, I think, hopeful stories and in a really grounded, clear-eyed way. But I think sometimes hope is located in sort of the crevices of the stories. It's not like uh, the stories don't read as like shiny, optimistic techno futures, but there's a real nut of human resilience in some of these stories or really interesting ideas at the level of really small groups and communities about how to live in a more sustainable way uh, or people just being obdurate and stubborn about being hopeful and moving forward, even when things are really screwed up around them. Uh, and so I think they're There is a lot of hope to be found in climate stories, but you often have to do a little bit of interpretation and digging um, to find it Uh, because I think people want to be realistic and they want to they want to mind the science as they're writing these stories as well. Absolutely. And we talked about that very thing in a recent news editorial meeting. The topic that we were focused on at that point was actually centered on aging and how a lot of times those stories are kind of doom and gloom, you know, particularly through this coronavirus pandemic. Is there a way that not necessarily that we would be doing advocacy journalism, but what's going right, for instance, or is there something that people can look forward to, for instance, as they age? And so here in the middle of the desert and, um, you know, with the drought contingency plan that's gone back and forth and You know, we understand that there's going to be limits on farmers here in the very near future for water irrigation. I mean, you have to sort of be real. So there can be solutions that can be promoted and that can be part of a hopeful future. You had referenced Jules. Jules Hogan joins us as well. Jules, 
you're one of the winners of the contest that led to your work being included in this anthology. Can you tell us the title of the work that's included? So the title is Those They Left Behind. And briefly, just give us a synopsis of the work. The work really follows three different women as they sort of cycle through um, the end of a near-distant time on our planet. It shows how each of them sort of make decisions in order to, I think, as Joey was saying, move forward in this new world that they are inhabiting. What are the essential dilemmas then for them? And is there any resolution? Well, they're really varied. One of the women, Masha, she's running a restaurant and then sort of transitions into a different mode of living. Um, Nandita is a woman who's searching landfills for lithium batteries, and she ends up creating art from some of the trash that she rescues from the land mi- the landfill. Sorry. <laughs> I keep saying landmine. I think that's a, an interesting connection. Yeah. Um, there's a Naoko, and she's a scientist who ends up turning down a ticket on a spaceship out of the world and um, ends up staying on Earth in order to try to make things better. And so it sort of follows these three women through making these choices. You write quite a bit of fiction. Is there a particular reason why you like that genre, maybe over, say, poetry, for instance, or essay writing? What attracts you uh, to fiction? I'm really interested in character and story. Um, I'm really interested in the ways in which I think each person creates and has within them an entire universe. And I'm interested in exploring those both in real life and then within the fiction that I write. So that's why I really lean into narrative. And you mentioned characters. How do you approach characterization? What types of devices might you use or exercises to build characterization? Because one of the things that we talk about on this program is how people actually go about the art of writing. You know, we refer to this program as a podcast about the literary arts. And so whether that's use of language, building characterization, building theme, for instance. The Initial character kind of comes to me, I guess, just sort of through thinking about questions that might interest me or putting together character traits that seem interesting to explore. You know, sometimes if I know specific details about specific people, I might also incorporate those in sort of like a a woven type fashion. And then if when I'm getting down to like nitty gritty decisions, sometimes if I can't decide myself, I will use tools like um, I like to roll a D20 die and use whether it's a high or low number to decide whether a character is, you know, very intuitive or whether they might like not notice what's going on around them. And so then that sort of builds like a more intrinsic personality, I think. Right. So you're using an old role playing game device that I remember from the very first release of (laughs) Dungeons and Dragons as a kid uh, to date myself. (laughs) That's great. I I love that. You know, people use all different types of devices. It could be things like making scratch notes on post-it notes, for instance. And some people actually have bought games that map out characterization. What were your anticipations when you submitted to this contest? What were your hopes? Well, I knew about the contest quite a while and beforehand through being part of Arizona State University's MFA community. And so I knew what they were looking for. I read 
sort of the contest description and then the things that Joey mentioned um, about what they kind of were looking for in these stories. So I crafted this story in, in response specifically to the Everything Change contest, but it was really my first trial into writing like directly climate fiction as a genre because typically I, I sort of strayed away from it. And so this was really my first venture into that, I think, concretely as a writer. Why so? Why did you stray away from that as a genre that you would write about? Um, I think I was afraid of the hopelessness that Joey was describing earlier. I yeah. didn't know how to write about the Anthropocene or climate change without it being really depressing and despairing. And I think realizing that there are also moments of hope, even within like our greatest tragedies, helped me to feel comfortable exploring that topic. Since we don't typically host panel interviews, let's take a quick break in the discussion. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Did you know that KJZZ's Spot 127 Youth Media Center is a qualifying charitable tax organization? Your Arizona State tax credit could support high school students in learning digital media and journalism skills. Take advantage before the May 17th deadline. More information at taxcredit.spot127.org. KJZZ offers original podcasts, and if you're looking for lively conversation and analysis of the week's news, check out the Friday Newscap podcast. Or dive into the challenges of homelessness in Phoenix in the Unsheltered podcast. Find all of our podcasts from Here Arizona, The Show, and KJZZ at iTunes, Spotify, and at podcasts.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Let's pick up with part two of the conversation about Cli-Fi and the new Everything Change anthology with one of the judges of the contest that led to it. Kelly Leidick also joined us on the panel, and I wanted to know how hard the role was and what she was looking for in the fiction submissions she read. You know, it's interesting because for me in my role, I was really one of the very first readers and kind of on the front lines when the initial entries had come in. And so there were a lot to wade through and to read. And I think in terms of trying to discern what would make a quality climate fiction short story, it really came down to making that human connection for me. And I know there were, there were several other folks who, who were also working in tandem with me. And of course, they'll have their subjective nuances as well. But for me, it was really the humanistic connection and looking to see a character interact with their world. Um, I think for me, the fascinating thing about climate fiction is that we're delving into a space that's still kind of unknown because, you know, as a collective, we're in this change now. (laughs) We're living through the change now. And so there are so many projections into the future or so many unknowns that we're, we're trying to make sense of. And I think that when we come back to story as a way to make sense of the world around us or, or to make sense of our place in the world, looking at climate fiction becomes an intrigue, you know, more than anything. And it can, can go into something that's speculative because we're all still kind of figuring it out. Right. That's the difficulty with futurism. It's often said that people don't have a crystal ball, but we have a great deal of science behind us since Earth Day has been a thing, if you will. And the science is 
pretty convincing, I think, to younger generations. Unfortunately, it's not convincing to older generations, I think, en masse. Not to say that a certain age group exclusively believes one way, but when you break it out in terms of age groups, it's clear that a lot of people who are older and might be more in control of political power, and I don't necessarily want to get political, but Mm -hmm. they don't seem to either A, think that there's anything that humans can really do, but you've also Mm -hmm. got a lot of deniers about the science out there. Were there stories that dealt with that that you saw, manuscripts that, that dealt with that doubt? I think there were there were some that dealt with that doubt, but I also think that there were a lot of stories that were projecting into an imagined space, a futuristic space that was being called to formulate our world, to create a world or project a world or to try and give hope to something that we're maybe trying to create, but we don't quite know what those nuances are, you know, and you're correct. I mean, the science is leading us in a certain direction, but some of those nuances, I still would say, are unknown. And a lot of folks, I think, are grappling with those pieces. What are the nuances? You know, is it more along the lines of drought? Is it more along the lines of weather upheaval? Is it more along the lines of something what we see in Jules is piece where we're leaving the planet Earth and going to Mars or, or going into other parts of our own galaxy. So I, I think there were a lot more entries that were along those lines and looking at, you know, these speculative elements. Joey, how many pieces are included in the anthology and when will it be available? So we released this anthology on Earth Day, and so it's available now. Uh, You can get it for free in a bunch of different digital formats. So whatever kind of device you're using or uh, use case, hopefully you can find one that works for you. We have 10 stories in the collection, plus an introductory essay by me and my co-editor, Angie Dell, and then 10 pieces of art that were created by Jao Queiroz, who is uh, an artist from Brazil who we commissioned, created these just absolutely stunning illustrations for each of the stories. And uh, we're really proud that we had such a diverse set of submissions for this contest, which continues, we were very lucky to, in 2016 and 2018. We had 580 submissions from 77 different countries. Oh, wow. Uh, So it was truly global. And then um, there's four different countries uh, represented in the 10 pieces that are printed in the book, the uh, Nigeria, the Philippines, the United States, and Australia. What was the timeline for this in terms of how many submissions you got and then how long you had to read and then get it to publication, if you will? We took submissions last spring in 2020, and then things got slowed down a bit, I think, like everything did by the pandemic and changes in our you know, working style at the university and some staffing changes among the people who were coordinating the contest. So we, we took a little longer. We also take a long time to judge the, uh, compared to other contests, I think, because we do a lot of rounds. So there was the initial round that Kelly was involved with. And then we have a, what we call a literary round, where we have some professors and more writers looking at the pieces from the perspective of sort of literary studies, I guess, or literary and creative writing perspectives. And then we have a scientific round as well, where we have sustainability scientists looking at the stories and giving us feedback. And then the final round involves a professional climate fiction author. So this time it was Claire Vi Watkins, who wrote an amazing climate fiction book, Gold Fame Citrus in 2015, that we quite like. And so she made the final decisions about the grand prize winner, for example. Well, it's an amazing collaborative effort. And uh, Joey, Jules, and Kelly, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about this collection. We will post information on our website at word.kjzz.org. Joey, Jules, and Kelly, thank you so much. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. The contest and the anthology is made possible by the Imagination and Climate Futures Initiative. It's a partnership with the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing and the Center for Science and Imagination at Arizona State University. You can find out more about it and our guests on our website at word.kjzz.org. We appreciate your financial support of this podcast, portions of which have been nominated for Edward R. Murrow and Public Media Journalists Association Awards. We're back soon for the final episode of this season. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.